0: I've told you a number of times that those to whom the Apostle John writes in 1st John have experienced difficult and serious tensions in their minds with regard to false teachers and their errant doctrines. There was a real temptation to listen to these teachers because of their persuasive ways, the ways they presented their damning messages. We don't know if all these false teachers had actually left the Christian community, although as we studied in 1 John 2.19, certainly it indicates that some of them did. There still could be those counterfeit Christians lurking among genuine believers in Asia Minor, and possibly if this church is in Ephesus, right in the very church itself. And John is concerned enough to encourage the true Christians to have the certainty of their experience of the genuine, abiding love of God. I would submit to you this morning That this is not simply something first century Christians need, it is also something twenty first century Christians desperately need. We all want to know with utter certainty that we have a genuine relationship with the Lord, that He is actively working in our lives and that He is loving us and caring for our souls. In other words, we want the tangible evidence that Jesus Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. We want to know that we're on our way to heaven and that our sin, guilt, and the punishment for it has been forever removed. Could it be possible that I can have this blessed assurance that Jesus is mine? Did we not just read in and sing in Amazing Grace this line of verse 3? The Lord has promised good to me His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Can it be so? Can we know that with confidence? Can we have the assurance that indeed Jesus is mine? Well, apparently John believed that we desperately needed to hear that message. He wrote in the first century to those to whom he initially writes, and through the Spirit of God, even for our own day, it is written for us that we also need this sense of assurance. It is necessary to pursue. It is fundamental to how we live as Christians, and we need to know it. We need to have that assurance. We must believe that we can be totally certain that Jesus is ours. And John gives that to us. Look in your Bibles at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Here is where John gives us four foundational truths which should give us the great assurance of our salvation. Listen to what he writes, 1 John 4, 12 to 16. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Four foundational truths that we have the assurance of our salvation. Here's the first one. You can see it on the Lord's Day Bulletin or behind me, and it is this. I love my fellow Christians because of our unseen Father's abiding and perfecting love. Or to say it more simply, I love my fellow Christians. You say, well, how does that give me the assurance of my own salvation? Can it be so? Notice what John says, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, if you have been with me and we've been studying 1 John, we finished, of course, verses 7 through 11 last time, and right here in verse 12, beginning with that first phrase, John says something very interesting and as though it comes totally out of the blue. He says in the first part of verse 12, no one has ever seen God. Now, if you look at verse 11, he says just before this, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And if you look at the latter part of verse 12, or that which comes Directly after this first phrase, it says, If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And if you're like me, you're going to ask the question, Why does he start out verse 12 by saying, No one has ever seen God? What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with love? Or what does that have to do with God loving us and our oughtness to love one another. What does that have to do if we are to love one another and God abides in us and His love is perfected in us? What does this have to do with anything? What is he trying to say with no one has ever seen God? Well, it might be something like this. We don't know exactly If one of the heresies of the first century was a claim by false teachers that they'd been receiving actual visitations or visions of God, but if certainly this could have been the case, John might be combating the heresy of someone in the camp, in the Christian community, in the church, who may have been claiming such visions. I think this is exactly what John is talking about here, because in these heresies of the first century, certainly one of them, if not several of them, had to do with the idea of someone claiming special knowledge of God. We will know them later, of course, in the second century as the Gnostics. And this was some kind of incipient, initial Gnosticism, unformed, unframed. Not articulated in a way that it will later be articulated, but certainly now there may have been those in the fellowship who were intimidating genuine believers by saying something like this, yes, but have you had a vision of God? Have you seen God? I've seen Him. Oh, you haven't seen Him? Well, then maybe you don't really know Him. Maybe you haven't come into a relationship with Him, because if you came into a relationship with Him, He would be visiting you. You'd have visions of the majestic. And certainly by the second century, these Gnostics believed, claimed they had a secret knowledge of God, even through visions and revelations where God was personally seen by them. And that's intimidating. That's incredibly intimidating. You're minding your own business, as it were, trying to be obedient to the Lord, trying to serve others, trying to love others, and along comes someone, either from the church fellowship or just outside, maybe even someone who had been there before, And they were making grandiose claims about their visions of God, about their relationship with God, about how God had regularly visited them and that they saw the Lord. They actually saw the person of the Father. It's probably not unlike some that we might see on television or hear about or read about in books today who would also say, I've had a vision of God. I've seen the Lord. I've been taken up to heaven. I have a relationship with God that is so intimate and deep and special. I have a knowledge that others don't have. That can prove very intimidating. And maybe that's what was going on here. And if these false teachers were claiming such a thing, John says it simply proves that indeed they are false claims because God, of course, is a spirit without flesh and blood, as John 4 teaches us. God who is holy and perfect in His being, and He therefore cannot be seen by any sinful man. If they make this boast to you, John is saying, it just proves that they are not truly from God. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. And apparently, even though we don't know precisely who's making such claims here and exactly how they were making them, there appears to have been some kind of general claim in the first century of having visions of the living god and were apparently somewhat popular during this first century because john especially confronts this very idea turn over in his gospel to john 118 john 118 this is john combating the heresies of his day by teaching us not to believe that such visions of the father can be seen. John 118 he uses the the word araho here which means to see or to pay attention to and which John by the way uses six times in this gospel. John 118 notice what he says again as though it seems as though it's coming right out of the blue John 118 no one has ever seen god. The only God, Christ, who is at the Father's side has made Him known, has manifested Him. Apparently John has to reiterate several times that no one has seen, no one can see God the Father. Look at John chapter 5, verse 37. From the lips of Jesus Himself, His own testimony. And the Father, John 5.37, who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. And then notice this. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. Look at chapter 6, verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. That's Jesus. That's the Lord. He has seen the Father several times here. John is reiterating, whether it's in his gospel or in his first letter, that there is apparently some kind of claim that That there are people who are experiencing the vision of the Father. They say they've seen Him. And John and even Jesus Himself refute such claims of seeing God. The apostles, who have they seen? They've seen the living Christ. And that's enough. That's quite enough. They've seen the living Christ, who the Bible says is the exact representation of the image and nature of God, and who is God's representative on earth. It isn't that the person of the Father has been seen by men. It is, however, that the person of Christ is sufficient to be seen, because he represents everything of the Father. And John teaches that in his gospel. And notice three times here in 1 John, he uses this same concept. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. He doesn't use the exact same word, araho, but he uses theaomai, which is really used synonymously, these two words. And notice what he says in 1 John 1 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, "...which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life." The life was made manifest and we have seen it, seen that life. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. You notice verse 1, which we have seen with our eyes. Verse 2, we have seen it. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. John is saying... You haven't seen a vision of the Father, but you have seen a vision of the living Christ. In fact, you've seen more than a vision. You've seen Him directly. And who's the you? We, the apostles. We've seen Him. And maybe, possibly, some who have even been in the midst of this community, this Christian community, might have been old enough to have seen Christ. This is important. This might have refuted the very claim that these people say, these false teachers and those they want to follow them, that they've had a vision of God. And John says, you don't have to be intimidated by that. We've seen Christ. And even beyond that, look at, look at chapter 4, verse 14 And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, God the Father, whom he has not seen. John says, you haven't seen the Father, but if you love one another... That gives evidence that you've seen the Christ or you've experienced the power of the Christ and His gospel. And lest anyone assume that John is just talking about some theoretical idea, notice how he grounds this concept when he says this in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. You say, what what does he mean? It's something like this. If you believe that one of the important ideas of your Christian experience is the need to see a vision of God the Father, it isn't so. You don't need that. Don't fall to that heresy. Don't believe that claim. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you can know that you have a relationship with God if you love one another in the body of Christ then that means by its very definition that God abides in you. That's all you need. That's all you need. Now, someone's going to say, well, boy, wouldn't it be a a greater affirmation of the claim if we did have some kind of vision, if we did have some kind of miracle, if we did have some kind of mighty work? And there are always going to be people who are going to want that, that supernatural idea of visions and miracles and mighty works to be able to substantiate the claim that I'm from God. John says, you know what you need? You need to have love prevail in the Christian community and that's how you know God abides with you. That's how you know. Just love one another. That's how you know that God is around, that's how you know that He exists, that's how you know that there is a God, because in your sinful, Christ-rejecting, unregenerate condition when you walked according to the prince of the power of the air, you didn't love. You only loved yourself. You only wanted to serve yourself. But when you love supernaturally, when you love like God loves, when you see what God is doing in sending His Son and you want to love others because you see what God has done in your life, then you give the greatest evidence that God is in your life. You give the greatest affirmation that you know God, that you have a relationship with God, that you know He exists. You don't need a vision for that. You don't need that. Here's what you need. Love in your heart. And God gives that to you. And when He does, you love others. And when you do, it gives evidence that God is in you. God's in the church. Corporately. Dynamically. God's in the fellowship. He's in the group. And when the group loves each other, it gives the greatest evidence that God exists. That He is here. I don't need a vision for that. This is is tremendous. This is... This is emphasizing one of the proofs that God is among you. And not only that, John says in verse 12 that God's love is perfected in you. Do you see that there? God's love is perfected in you? Yes. As you love others in the body of Christ... God's very dynamic of love, the way He loves, because God is love, is being progressively made complete in you. That's something the world knows nothing about. Just recently we've had some some men out of work needing to to help pay the bills for the sake of themselves and their family and we 've attempted as a church to come alongside them, and we pray for them, and we tangibly help them and there are those who are in sickness and distress, and we try to come alongside them, and we try to visit them and minister to them and there are multitudes of other ways in which we attempt to love others, we attempt to, to come alongside them and to be a ministry to them, so that they could say even in their own hearts, and we could say in ours that God abides with us in the church because we love one another. And that God's love is being perfected in us because God wants to reach out to those who have need. And He does does that through the body of Christ. And when we do that, we show the very evidence, the very proof that God's love abides in us and that His love is being perfected in us. You know what Romans 5.5 says? The love of God is what? Shed abroad in your hearts. Isn't that a great phrase? Shed abroad in your hearts. In other words, when you're regenerated, when you're born again, when God visits you in salvation, you have the love of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit shed abroad in your hearts, so broad, so deep, so wide that you just simply want to turn around and love others as you have been loved. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to go. His love is perfected in us. You remember first John two: five? Whoever keeps his word, and I would suggest the word to love others in him, truly, the love of God is perfected. That's incredible. First John four seventeen: By this is love perfected with us when we love others. Verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You want to know that God is real, that God abides with His church? Then love others in the body of Christ. That's how you know. I love my fellow Christians. I love them because I see God. And how do I see God? I see Him working in and through my life when I love, and I see Him when I see others in and through their lives loving me. That's how I see it. And, and these, are, these are repeated themes over and over and over again in First John. The word love, to love, agapao, it's used 18 times, 28 times in First John, 28 times. It's a major theme. Love, agape, used 18 times in this book alone. And the word abide, minnow, used 24 times in this book. You want to know how love abides? You want to know what it means to abide in Christ, to abide in God? Love one another. It's amazing. We're talking about some of John's most important words in his entire vocabulary. Love one another. I ask you today. Do you love your fellow Christians in the body of Christ? Do you love them? Do you desire to reach out to them? You see, if you recognize and rejoice in God's abiding and perfecting love, you do. You'll answer that question, yes, I do. I don't love them as I ought, I know that, but I want to love them deeper still. I want to abound in that love. I want to take care of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because I see God. I I see Him in the sense that I see His love in me, that I'm experiencing that love, that I want that love to go out from me to others. I love my fellow Christians. Here's the second foundational truth of our assurance. I know my relationship with God is secure because of our gracious Father's gift of the Holy Spirit. I love and I know. You want to know how to have the assurance of your salvation? Love your fellow Christians. That will give you a strong sense of whether or not you have the assurance of your own salvation. And secondly, I know my relationship with God is secure because of our gracious Heavenly Father's gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. By this we know, underscore that, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. What a glorious thought. What a gracious thing. We've just sung about the grace of God, haven't we? This is the grace of God. And yet someone might say, in what sense is the Holy Spirit given to us? And for what purpose have we been given the gift of the Holy Spirit? I mean, it's one thing to say He has given us of His Spirit, but why? Why does John say that here? Why is that some kind of assurance of my salvation? I mean, someone could say, boy, that sounds somewhat mystical. I thought He was just moving us away from the mystical dimension of not seeing God, seeing God the Father. And now He puts in, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Is that some kind of mystical giving of my assurance to me? Does the Holy Spirit visit me with some kind of inaudible frame of words and I'm just walking down the street or I'm in my chair and and I'm sensing the presence of the Holy Spirit, which then gives me a sense that I'm assured of my relationship in Christ? Is that what it is? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think it's something like this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a gracious gift of God so that we might understand and know and affirm the truth. You say, how do you arrive at that? Look in your Bibles at 1 John chapter 4 verses 14 and 15. Just two verses beyond this. What does the Spirit do? We've been given the Spirit, notice what He does for us, verse 14, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. You see, how does that prove to us that the Spirit is doing this? In First John, The Holy Spirit is given to us so as to witness or testify to the truth, to the truth that Jesus is God, to the truth that Jesus has come in the flesh, to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. That's what the Holy Spirit's ministry is doing in 1 John. In fact, look at chapter 2 verse 18. And you'll see this. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not some kind of mystical thing. It's the Spirit attesting to the truth of who Jesus is. That's the ministry of the Spirit to glorify Christ. Look at 1 John two eighteen, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. There's going to be a lot of heresy coming Against the church in the last hour, and the last hour, of course, includes the time of the ascension of Christ until His second coming. Verse 19, they went out from us, these heretics, these false professors of religion, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But if you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, that's a reference, I believe, to the Holy Spirit, and you all have knowledge, I then write to you, not because you do not know the what? The truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. The Holy Spirit is attesting to you about the truth. And what is the truth? What is the Holy Spirit's role in giving us the truth? Look at verse 22. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, fa- the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You know that if you affirm Jesus as having come in the flesh, that's not from you, but that's from the Holy Spirit that's from the Holy Spirit. He produces first in regeneration and then in affirmation the idea that Jesus is the Christ. And if someone says, I don't believe that, that means they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's right. Do you remember when Jesus asked his own disciples, who am I? Who do men say that I am? And you remember Peter's response? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say in response to that? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He revealed that to you, and He does so through the person of the Spirit. The Spirit gives anyone who proclaims Jesus as the Christ the ability to do so. And that's why He says in verse 24... 1 John 2, let what you heard from the beginning, the beginning of the truth about Jesus, abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's the Holy Spirit's role, that's His ministry. Look at the end of chapter 3, the latter part of verse 24. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And notice what the Spirit does. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, spirit with a small s, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Verse 6, whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Chapter 5, verse 6. This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. All throughout 1 John, you're hearing over and over and over again of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what is the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To teach you, to reveal to you that Jesus is the Christ. Christ. So what does He mean here? He means the exact same thing. By this we know that we abide in Him, in God the Father, and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit testifies that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. That's what the Spirit of God does. It's not some kind of mystical idea. It's the truth of proving who Jesus Christ is. What a gift-giving by the Father. If we don't have the Spirit, my friends, we do not have the ability to affirm that Jesus Christ is God and that He's come in the flesh and that He died for us and that He, that he sacrificed His life and paid the penalty for our sins. We don't have it. Do you thank God for the Spirit? Do you thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has been graciously given to us. It's a grace gift. That's why we can say, I know, I know, I affirm that Jesus is who He said He is by the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Spirit, for giving me the ability, the comprehension, the mental grasp that Jesus is the Christ. I wouldn't affirm Him without you. Do you possess that knowledge, my friends? Do you have that knowledge? Are you the recipient of this gracious gift of the Father, giving you the Spirit? Do you in fact know? Do you in fact confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world? That's, that's by the way, the third affirmation here the third foundational truth of the assurance of our salvation. I confess my allegiance to Jesus Christ because He is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. Look at verse 14. And we have seen, there's that word again, and we have seen and testify, that's the Holy Spirit, through the witnessing of John, through the apostolic testimony, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God." You want to know if you have the assurance of your own salvation? What do you confess? What do you confess? Confession. Oh, that's the idea that I declare. I affirm. You know, people downplay. Unfortunately, doctrinal clarity today, doctrinal commitments, doctrinal affirmations, doctrinal propositions, and they do so to their own peril. Because even if someone were to do so, the Bible right here questions the legitimacy of not only their salvation, but even the assurance of it. Because you gain that assurance by confessing that Jesus is the Son of God and God's only Savior. This, by the way, is so fascinating. We hear a lot about Jesus as the Savior of the world. Do you know that that phrase "Savior of the world," attributed to Jesus only, actually occurs twice in our New Testaments, right here and in John four forty-two. In John 4.42, the context is something like this. He's the Savior of the world, not just of Jews, but of Gentiles also. That's the context. And here in 1 John 4, He's the Savior of the world in the sense that He is the only Savior that is presented to the world. That's it. No, There are no other Saviors. There are no other Messiahs. It is God's only announced and declared Savior for the world of sinners. There is no other Savior. That's what I believe. That's what I confess. What about you? Is that what you confess? Is that what you believe? Well, it might be easy for you to believe that here, here in America. We have freedom of religious expression, but during that Gospel Coalition Conference that Todd Murray and I attended, one of the speakers was Ajit Fernando, a wonderful brother in the Lord from Sri Lanka. And he gave a wonderful message. And he said in that very, very difficult war-torn country, they've had civil war there for decades and decades. And he works for Youth for Christ there. And some of his own staff persons through the years have given up their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the religious persecution that goes on there. Heavily, heavily dominated country of Islam. And Ajit Fernando was speaking and he said, there are now laws on the books that are actually being debated within their legislature for the sake of declaring that if someone proselytizes about Jesus Christ to anyone, they will be sent to prison for a minimum of eight years. And this is what he said. He said, my son told me we ought to start working very aggressively in the prisons right now to get them sort of up to speed because we're about to go there. Now, for a man like that to stand in a public gathering and say, I confess my allegiance to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. Could get you eight years. How about somebody who would want to be in a country like that, maybe yourself, saying, I'll go, I'll be the public declarer of that truth, I'll say it, I'll talk to others, I'll witness for Christ, could cost you, could cost you a lot. You see, in John's own day, there was also persecution of an amazing sort. In fact, if John were writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it may be just after he has come back from his forced exile in Patmos. And he may have been there for a long, long time. I've been to Patmos. I've actually been down in the hole of that which witnesses say from centuries was John's own exiled spot. It's not a very pretty spot at all. John, however, wants to declare to all who are listening that if, in fact, you want to know the assurance of your very salvation, here's one way to declare your allegiance and commitment to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about gaining a measure, a certain measure of your own assurance of salvation? by declaring publicly and to whoever else will listen your allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's a a confession you ought to make. I love, I know, I confess. I confess Christ. He's the only Savior of the world. He's offered as the sole Savior and satisfaction for sinners, for the punishment that is due ourselves. Do you confess your allegiance to Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. And it's one of the ways that John teaches us that allows us to know with certainty that you're truly born again. Maybe you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation because you won't declare to yourself or to any others that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. How about gaining some assurance by boldly confessing before men that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you know that some of you have not been baptized? Some of you have not been baptized. You say, I do declare my allegiance to Jesus Christ. Guess what the Bible says? To declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ is to publicly confess Him before men. You confess Him before men? Who knows of your conversion? Who knows of it? Even some of you young people Have you gone to your parents and said, I want to be baptized. I want to publicly declare my faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that in some of those countries, like I mentioned, with severe persecution, young people and older people and maybe even the oldest people want to, in the face of even public indignation public reprisal, want to go someplace like a lake or a pond to declare their faith in Jesus Christ, that He is the only Savior of the world, knowing that as soon as they come up out of the water, they will be taken away and possibly taken away from their families, possibly forever and possibly killed for their faith. But they are willing and ready and eager to do so. How about you? This is This is what John is saying right in the face of the heretics and those who are claiming that they have visions and those who are claiming that they're the ones who are truly in the know, they're the ones who are truly loving, they're the ones who are truly confessing their allegiance, but it isn't to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and it isn't to the only Savior who has provided for the world, Jesus Himself. And please, please don't miss this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, what's the next phrase? God abides in Him and He in God. I'll tell you what, my friends, there is no greater way to live as a professing Christian than to know with certainty that you have salvation. The certainty of it. Do you have it? Do you have that assurance? Do you know it like the back of your hand? You can. This, this book is written in part to declare that there is not only the possibility, but the certainty of your salvation through Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You can have it. You can know it. 1 John three twenty four. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Moral commitment. Ethical commitment. I know that God abides in me because I want to obey Jesus. 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. I repeat myself all the time in my preaching, and I stand in a long line of wonderful brothers who do so, including John. Abide, 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 and I can hear somebody saying, enough of the abiding already. I got it. I know it. I have it. Would you, if you were persecuted? Would you? Or if you'd be, if you'd be in a dark, dingy dungeon for your faith? wouldn't you want to hear it over and over and over again? You'd want to hear it. you want to hear it from the pages of Scripture. No wonder Paul says at the end of Second Timothy, he tells Timothy, bring the books. He's in prison. He's about to die. Bring the books, especially the parchments. I want to read. I want to study. I want to be reminded again of my abiding in God. Do you confess your full allegiance to Jesus, God's Son and Savior? You ought to, and you ought to do it today. And you ought to talk with some of our elders in the prayer room afterwards, and you ought to say, Today is the day of salvation. I declare that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's my Savior, that He has died for my sins, that I repent and I turn from those sins, and I place the object of my faith, that is Jesus Christ before a watching world as I declare Him in the waters of baptism. That's what you ought to do. That's what you ought to do today. Every young person, every older person who have not been baptized, you ought to declare your faith in Jesus Christ through baptism that gives you the public opportunity to declare, to confess your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Fourth and final. Fourth and final truth. It's foundational. That's why John is written what he has here in his first letter, I believe my God loves me because He is love and abides in me. Verse 16, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. There he goes again. There he goes without abiding. We must need to know it time and time again. And by the way, do you see the little connector word, so, which begins verse 16? It's there in order to tie in what John has just written regarding that affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. John is actually saying that this truth of the incarnation, the sinless life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which demonstrates the love that God has for us. The greatest demonstration in the history of the world. There is no greater love. This is the demonstration of the apex of love, that God sent His own Son, His one and only Son, His unique Son, the Son in whom He was well pleased, the Son of His love, to demonstrate His love for you. No greater love. No greater love. And someone might come along and say, well, it's pretty arrogant to say that I can know and believe that God loves me, because that's... That's what John is driving toward here, verse 16. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And someone might say, that's pretty arrogant. That's pretty proud. You can say that you know and that you believe the love that God has for you. You know it. You believe it. That's why he's written the book. It's here. It's, it's right in the text of Holy Scripture that we have come to know. It's a settled knowledge and a belief that the love that God has for us abides in me. It's not arrogance. It's confidence. I had a seminary professor who would always say, just remind us of the balance, men, we're to be confident but not cocky. Confident but not cocky. It's not a cocky retort. It's not somebody who's arrogant, somebody who's proud. It's somebody who has the very confidence that God abides in him. That's godly confidence. That's godly assurance. It isn't arrogant at all to assume God's love for you, if you would do what God commands and confess your allegiance to Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. This is the very assumption, I might add, that God wants you to have in reading this book. That's the very assumption that He wants you to have. He's driving you to that point. He wants you to know it. He desires that everyone confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God to know of His abiding love. It's almost as though as we said at the beginning in the garden pushed out because of your sin through Jesus Christ ushered by his loving hand to come home come home you've sinned against the Lord your whole life has been a sinful intrusion into the holiness of God his perfect life but even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated His commitment to sinners by sending His only Son to die for sinners so that they might be ushered back home. Come back home. Come to God. Come to Christ. 2 Peter 3.9 says it this way, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Just reach out for it, and God will allow you to grasp it. John ends this portion of the love section of 1 John 4 by restating what he already has said just a few verses earlier God is love. God is love. But notice how he says it, God is love. If you love others in the body of Christ, you can see that loving hand of God. You can see the essence of his love, which carries us right back to where we started in verse 12, you show yourself as one of those who abides in God and mutually he abides in you. Oh, my friends, God demonstrates his magnanimous love for you and sending His one and only Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world so that through this demonstration of love you might confess this truth and know, believe this love which would be sweet to your soul. Do you believe in and see this demonstrated love of God? Oh, I trust that you do. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank You so much. These four foundational truths are ours. I love others in the body. I know God through the Spirit. I confess Christ to save. I believe God is love. Lord, allow us even throughout the rest of this afternoon, yea, even throughout our Christian lives, to see these foundational truths as the very ground of the assurance that we have through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ. I love others in the body. I know God through the Spirit. I confess Christ to save. And I believe God is love. Pour out your assurance to us, heavenly Lord, and we will thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.